Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us, guys, at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreau. And Nyla Schwab. Coming up on the Gifted Life today. COVID and donation. We have an expert weighing in on whether the two can mix. And I'm going to be talking about feeling uncertain and really what can you do about it. All that and more. Episode 171. Here we go. excited to have an in-studio guest and what a timely guest to have. Dr. Jonathan Hand, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for the invitation. We appreciate you coming in. He serves as the medical director of the Transplant Infectious Diseases Program over at Oshner Medical Center. And we kind of know him, huh, Joe? Yes, we do. Actually, I lean on Dr. Hand quite a bit, especially over the last year. Especially now, yes. With all this craziness. He is, uh, he is Lopa's uh, medical director as well, associate medical director. And uh, of course, with his specialty being infectious disease, you know, that, that's one of the, the things that we have to look at quite a bit from an organ donor standpoint of whether a patient would be a good candidate for donation. So, so as I said, you know, he's been one of my, he's on my speed dial uh, all at, pretty much at all times. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and so I guess, you know, the reason he's on my speed dial lately, I'll go ahead and kick it off with this because it's, uh, it's not just a LOPA thing. I, I get questions from family, from friends, from all over in the community, uh, you know, that the people that know what I do. And they, they ask me this basic question. If, a, you know, a patient gets COVID, can that person become a donor? And my answer is always very complex. <laughs> so <laughs> with that, I guess I'll go ahead and kick it to you, Doc. What do you say? Well, I, you know, you know, I'm always going to say a lot more stuff than you asked and then finally get to your question. <laughs> and we do the same. But I think it's important to, we have to start with some type of context. And so when we're talking about a shared finite sort of uh, resource in the country of, of organ donors, and we're talking about people who are on a wait list, and um, we're talking about the the gift of life that these that donors are giving and we're talking about people who are very very sick on that wait list waiting for an organ we really can't just say oh this sounds like a bad idea let's go let's let's not use this donor and so we have to really think about all of that context in each donor that we evaluate and so my specialty uh, from an infectious diseases standpoint we think and do a lot of work around infections in donors. And uh, there are a lot of infections that donors can have, uh, and they're, uh, uh, most of the time we have pretty good science that tells us that they're safe to use and we can treat our recipients in the post-transplant setting if we need to. So certain donors with bacterial pneumonias, um, even bacterial meningitis. If we have available drug options, we can mm -hmm. treat the donor for a little bit and then treat the recipients once they actually get the organ. So we've also made, a, uh, I would say that the transplant community has made significant strides in using other types of infected uh, or donors with infections 
specifically hepatitis C. And I know we've talked at length on this podcast about donors with hepatitis C used for recipients who do not have hepatitis C. And then uh, we're able to cure patients mm-hmm. in the post-transplant setting. Um, so a great option to increase the amount and type of donors that we're using. And then, you, as you always, you know, I'm going to always talk about uh, the HOPE Act or the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act. And this is uh, allows for people living with HIV to donate their organs and, uh, you know, uh, give that gift of life and save other people's lives through donation. And so we use uh, HIV positive donors for people who are living with HIV that may have uh, kidney or liver disease. And so we're, you know, a lot of places in the country are are, uh, transplanting under those protocols. And so this is kind of how... I got involved with LOPA to begin with was evaluating and optimizing donors who have certain types of infections. So when COVID came, as as Joe is alluding to, we had a lot of conversations w- together and with other experts in the country, and there is a lot of unknowns, and there still still are a good amount of unknowns. But to answer your question, at this point, if you had COVID, can you still be an organ donor? Absolutely, absolutely, you can be an organ donor. Um, in, in most scenarios, we probably uh, would not transplant organs from a, a donor who has COVID in, the, uh, in a, a severe case of COVID at that time. So if, unfortunately, you're in the hospital and not going to make it from COVID uh, and you're super, super sick, we, we probably would not use donors in that scenario. But any other scenario, we really want to have a nuanced approach to how we're evaluating the the these donors and, you know, how severe their infection is, how long have they had infection? Um, does it look like other organs are involved with their COVID presentation? So, um, and I say this all the time with all infections and everything. I know y'all say the same thing, you know, don't rule yourself out. Let an expert like the team at LOPA, um, your physicians, people taking care of you, you know, you just sign up to be an organ donor and then we can kind of decide because though there are, I think situations where we wouldn't use certain types of infected uh, donors with certain types of infections, it's important to know that these are really tough and nuanced conversations that we have. And so you never want to rule yourself out. And I appreciate you um, coming in. It's, it's hard. Like, where do you find this good information? There's so much information out there, but some of them are not from reliable sites. Some of them, it's just a guy in a white coat. We don't know where he works, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we appreciate yourself, uh, you making yourself available to answer these questions. I deal with most of the recipients, and they talk about uh, this booster shot uh, that came out. Do we need that? How How is this vaccine impacting them? So can you kind of tell us kind of where we are now? Yeah, so um, with after someone is immunosuppressed and people after solid organ transplant receive life-saving immunosuppressive medications, kind of take away parts of your immune system, if you want to think of it that way. So for essentially for life, you are somewhat immunosuppressed. So with other vaccines, vaccination is an extremely important part of post-transplant living, post-transplant life, staying safe, getting all recommended vaccines mm-hmm. that your transplant providers want you to have, including your family, to protect you too, to cocoon you. Mm-hmm. But even with things like influenza vaccine, we have seen that the immune response with uh, in patients who are on immunosuppression is less, meaning you may not be as protected 
after you get a vaccine than someone else with a more quote unquote normal immune system. So immunosuppressed patients may not be as protected from vaccines. Doesn't mean you don't get them. They're absolutely very, very, very safe and effective at preventing severe disease, but the immune response could be less. So in certain groups of patients or uh, Certain studies have shown in certain immunocompromised, immunosuppressed populations that the two doses of the COVID vaccine um, didn't have as high antibody responses in those immunocompromised patients as it did in immunocompetent or people with, again, this more normal immune mm -hmm. system. So, and uh, a lot, and the initial trials for all of these vaccines didn't include people who were living with immunosuppression. Uh, and so the the rates of antibody responses are excellent, and those trials very, again very very safe, very very safe for our transplant patients. We want everyone to get them, but the immune response might be less. Mm -hmm. So you might be less protected than someone else. So this uh, there were uh, there's been the the big kind of the more landmark study in this space was in the New England Journal from investigators uh, in Canada, and they showed that giving a third dose compared to just two doses, significantly increase the antibody response in patients after transplant. So the, um, the uh, FDA and then the CDC came out with recommendations that if you're immunosuppressed, a third dose of vaccine is uh, recommended for you. And the list of these are on the, if you qualify for this, the list of these are on the CDC website, but um, I'll go through them. So immunocompromise is being described as receiving active cancer treatment for tumors or cancers of the blood, organ transplant, stem cell transplant within the last two years, and you're continuing to take medications that suppress your immune system, uh, moderate or severe primary immunodeficiencies, such as DeGeorge syndrome or Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, and then advanced or untreated HIV infection, and also active treatment with high-dose steroids or other types of drugs that suppress your immune system. And tons and tons of people are on drugs that suppress their immune system. So that, that goes for people with Crohn's disease, you know, different IBD, multiple sclerosis. I mean, there's lots of different patients that are on immunomodulatory types of medications. And if you consider yourself high risk or you're concerned about your, the medications you're taking, mm -hmm. always ask your doctor if you qualify for that third dose. Um, because again, we recommend it. This is a, uh, one of the CDC recommendations. So. Um, and that's this is kind of the group of types of patients that I'm able to take care of mm -hmm. at Auction to help formulate some of these recommendations for our own patients and be a resource for uh, our providers who take care of those folks. And so the third dose is different, separate from the booster. So we the third, so the third dose. Yes, yeah, great question. So the third dose, and uh, is for people who may not have had a high enough antibody response for the first two doses. Mm -hmm. The booster that is being discussed a lot in the news right now um, is for people who probably, their immune systems probably responded well to the first two shots, mm. but because the antibody response goes down over time, we've seen that in multiple studies, that you may need a boost to get that antibody response back to where it was after you had the first two. 
Not just a clever name then. <laughs> yeah. So there is that difference, that uh, the distinction that we try to make. Um, but there's there's no difference necessarily in gotcha. those. There, so different vaccine boosters are being studied. Uh, diff- different mRNA vaccines that cover new variants of concern are definitely being studied. But right now, if you go, you get the you know wherever you, pharmacy, your doctor's office, you'll get a, uh, a, a an immunocompromise. You'll get it's, it's the same vaccine. It's just an additional dose. You just hear all these terms coming out. It's like, how, how does it apply to me or our friends when we talk about it? Um, and I'm out in the community, or I used to be a lot more out in the community pre, pre-COVID. pre um, But then we, you know, and I have children as well. So um, those uh, young kids and our pediatric recipients, I worry about them. So where are we on that? Because we heard, you know, this new vaccine for those who are little. Yeah, we're we're very excited about mm-hmm. this. Um, for kids 12 and older, absolutely recommended and approved for those kids to get um, get vaccinated. For the 5 to 11, 5 to 12 range, uh, we just see some positive data that's coming out in the news uh, that this is both uh, very safe and looks like it creates a good antibody response. So effective in these in, in younger kids. We're going to need to wait a little bit more to see what the official recommendations are from governing bodies about that younger group. But right now, 12, 12 and older, no question, uh, under that very promising data to, I think, I think we will have um, safe and effective vaccines for those groups. But right now, there's not an official recommendation or uh, availability yet for those, those younger kids. I like that you make yourself uh, you know, accessible. Um, where would you suggest people go for information? Like, there's just so much information, especially on yeah, social media. You know, like, it's is hard. there a site it's, where you go? <laughs> it's hard. No, it, it, it's a this is a great question because there's just so much stuff out there, and and I know most people don't have the CDC's webpage as their homepage on mm-hmm. their computer, or the, you know, you don't just say, "What did the CDC say today?" You know, I, I totally get that. But when you do have specific questions. It really, it, the CDC, it, it's very user friendly. Mm-hmm. It, it's up to date. It's, um, it gives, it actually, it doesn't just say the information, it, it gives you links to the citation, so the actual science mm-hmm. on which they're basing these, their decisions. So I, I do recommend that you check in the CDC. You can always ask your doctor, but it's, um, I think the CDC is, is really the most kind of straightforward, up to date place you can go. And it's, it's user friendly, and there's specific questions that you have. It's not mm-hmm. right. So you're saying, well, when can my kid? I mean, you can literally type that in to Google and find the CDC's page for mm-hmm. when are children going to be vaccinated. It'll tell you. We expect data in the next few weeks on this. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, 12 and up, definitely get vaccinated. So I know that's a. It's hard to say where to find information, but trusted, you know, trusted information. Trusted information. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, that's. That's honestly where we would go. And I know you hear a lot of uh, debate about different uh, branches of government and science and politics, and it gets it's all very messy. But the most hospitals, mm-hmm. I'll just put it this way, most hospitals and uh, most scientists who are it, kind of uh, doing work in public health to kind of get some of these recommendations done, the recommendations they are using are typically in line with the CDC's recommendations. So, um, you know, the scientists definitely debate on certain 
answers and certain ways to ask questions. And that's what you want. Like you want the scientific community to try to figure out the best and right answer. Um, but the most up-to-date uh, recommendations and guidance are, are going to be from the CDC's website. So, Doc, I have a question just just to go back just a minute. Uh, you know, you talked about the, the children that are getting vaccinated, you know, the fact that you can get vaccinated at, at 12 now. Uh, I get a lot of questions from uh, from again, from the community, from friends about uh, the fact that, well, if the if my child uh, in general, if children aren't being uh, having to be uh, you know put into hospitals, aren't getting that sick. Uh, if, if they're most of the time they're carriers, then why should I go through the quote unquote, and I'm air quoting the risk, the risk with the vaccine that they, of course, you know, shout back at me. Uh, why should I do that? Why should I put my child through that? Why should I run the risk of that? If the risk of you know getting uh, uh, COVID and, and, and being fine with it, you know, it's, it's, it's not that severe. You know, it's, it's a, it's a common question for sure. Um, but, you know, with Delta, we really are seeing a lot more children, unfortunately, affected by this strain of virus and being hospitalized. And in the region, we've seen a lot of that, too. And I know you've uh, unfortunately seen that, too, in the role that uh, you serve here. And so I think, one, it, it, it does affect kids. It may not affect kids as much as it affects adults, but it definitely does. Number two, we really want to, and I, I think since we're talking about immunocompromised patients and the after a solid organ transplant, we really want everybody that can be vaccinated to be vaccinated so that we can prevent transmission to people who have less of immune response to vaccine. And so we're protecting some of the people who, uh, again, are immunocompromised or older patients. Um, and I think, or even younger babies, right, that still can't get vaccinated. So um, for instance, if I my household has a um, six-year-old and then a newborn, and the six-year-old can be vaccinated, and newborn can't, well, by me vaccinating my six-year-old, I'm protecting my newborn. And so this is the sort of cocooning effect that we want to see after transplant, for sure. But in general, to try to end this pandemic uh, and, and prevent people from, pre people from having severe disease, we want everybody who will be eligible to be vaccinated to be vaccinated. So it's not just for the individual risk, but it's also that community, family, close contact, risk that you would want everybody who can uh, to be vaccinated. And then the, I'd say this a lot, the third reason to get vaccinated, uh, obviously you want to protect yourself, but um, really do it for yourself. Because as you're seeing, you can't go anywhere or get anything done uh, or travel abroad or do anything, any of the things that you need to do to kind of be part of society if you're not vaccinated. So if you can't do it to prevent disease in yourself or prevent disease in others, then do it for yourself so that uh, purely selfish reasons so you can actually go do stuff. And I think uh, that's going to be applicable to children at some point, too, with educating them. And so I, I think uh, it's a good question that you have, but there's a lot of things that we need to think about about reasons to vaccinate anyone who's eligible. That would include children uh, and hopefully under, kids under 12 soon. Do you love the question, the flu disappeared? So <laughs> what's up? Do you like that theory? <laughs> yeah. You Explain know, it for us. Yeah, well, with all of our, and the fancy word 
for this is respiratory hygiene, but with masking, with social distancing, with everyone really thoughtful and aggressive about hand hygiene, um, and us designing spaces that are uh, consider respiratory hygiene with the barriers in different places mm -hmm. as we have here. Um, we saw a significant decrease in the amount of community-acquired respiratory viruses that we normally see. So influenza, RSV, metanumovirus, just these are kind of common cold viruses. Um, we stopped seeing a lot of those. And a lot of this was kids who were not in school. That's part of it. But we were also doing these, again, these respiratory hygiene um, aspects of how to curb a pandemic that also affected these other respiratory viruses. Mm -hmm. So what I think um, we still have, though COVID and influenza are, are very, very different, um, we still know that when you vaccinate people against influenza, it prevents severe disease and hospitalization and death from influenza. It may not be perfect at preventing the flu, but it's the vaccine still prevents you from having severe disease. So as everything opens back up, as we try to keep our kids safely in school, mm. right? Right. We Normalcy. want that's a big, Routine. big yeah. thing for us, for everyone, is we want everyone to not forget about their flu vaccines. It's very, very important. Um, and it obviously includes people living with immunocompromising conditions. That includes their family members, the cocooning aspect of this. I know I keep repeating that, but it's so important that it's people are eligible. I'm thinking, that yeah. people no, protect good. your family members yeah. who are immunosuppressed by that cocooning mechanism and getting all age appropriate vaccines that you're recommended to have. So I do um, you know, I think a lot of us do kind of worry that uh, what, what's gonna with everything open back up, mm. what are we going to see from flu, with flu combined with COVID? Uh, we had a very odd RSV season. It came at a time it normally doesn't come. So how are we going to, what are we going to see with, again, all these other respiratory viruses mm -hmm. like RSV uh, on top of COVID? Not to say that we need to all be panicked and fearful of this, but we need to be thoughtful. And what can we do right. to try to prevent this, all of these things from coming together? It's to get any vaccine that you're eligible for, COVID, if you're eligible, and uh, the flu vaccine, which we give to little kids all the time. So um, my kids, whenever they're eligible for the flu, the flu vaccine is actually out and available right now. So they have appointments coming up to get that. And when they're eligible to get a uh, COVID vaccine, like I told you before, good luck getting in front of me. Um, yeah. <laughs> or my I know. Kids. He told me that today. It makes me nervous because I got to get in line, too. Um, but I did hear you you speak of just questions that, that are out that, that were in, in my head, too. But I have a teen um, and you did a talk and I, I was struggling with it because you hear all of these things. That's why I ask you, where do you, where do you go <laughs> for information and to help understand and for someone like like me? So I have a, a, a teenager and I talked about fertility issues. And uh, then I have another friend who's nursing. And so uh, there is, you know, you're, you're kind of scared as we as we learn about this virus. So, um, but you helped me make a decision with my teen, uh, which is, you know, to, to vaccinate, right? That's the smart thing to do. Um, so what is the thinking around that for those who didn't hear that discussion that you had? I, I just thought it was great. So um, I'm not exactly sure which points you're asking that. I, I've, I've discussed a lot of this in a lot of different scenarios. <laughs> I know um, but you were specific, great. I'll specifically talk about uh, fertility because I think it's interesting. There's, there is no association with infertility in these vaccines in the large, lar very large scale clinical trials. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, people who were pregnant um, had uh, no issues with uh, miscarriages and um, or getting pregnant. People in those trials got pregnant as well. But really, one of the better studies to date on this is came out fairly recently. A few thousand women looking at women who are vaccinated within 20 weeks. So within 20 weeks of becoming pregnant, there was no difference in miscarriage rates or anything like that. So, you know, we're getting more and more data that it's, it's, it is uh, safe and doesn't have any effect on fertility. Um, but um, so that's kind of my answer for that. It's like we, we have no evidence that this affects fertility. Mm-hmm. Um, well, is there and, another and you just, component you wanted me to? Yeah, no, so great. You, you just hear these scare tactics, especially on social media. Things are coming from, from everywhere. And then it was okay to make a decision for me, but to make a decision for my growing girl and her future, uh, that was a lot. And so uh, while I was struggling with that, I was uh, praying on it, looking for information, and then you pop up and that's the specific question. I was like, I just needed to hear you say yeah. that and talk about it. And no, I think it's important what you're saying about your children and making decisions for them. Um, you know, Personally, I want my kids to look back at this time and say, my parents did what they needed to do for me mm-hmm. to help me keep me safe during a global pandemic. And I think that if your kids can look back and say you made the right decision to vaccinate them, I mean, I think that's that's what I want my kids to be able to look back mm-hmm. and say, right, that we took care of them during a pandemic. Yeah. And I want them to talk about uh, you know, be around to tell their kids about it, right? That's right. <laughs> so we we want to do that, and we're taking all of those steps and and being cautious. And I know this is going to be a continuing conversation as you learn more. We'll come back, and obviously there's more questions that'll come up. But just to make yourself available, um, someone with your your knowledge, and this is what you do, right? So you can hear a news anchor talking about it, which I used to be. So not an expert on on infectious disease in any means, but someone who's trying to pay attention and trying to learn and asking questions. Yeah, no, and I think, it, like you said before, it's important to uh, listen to true experts on this mm-hmm. um, because, you know, we're all, as experts, we're all trying to understand and digest new information that comes out and the science that comes out mm-hmm. and critically appraise those types of articles to understand how this these things then need to be implemented. And so I think um, you see the the CDC trying to do the best that they can with the science that's coming out so quickly um, and trying to turn that around into an, an, a recommendation that can help us out here. Yeah. So um, it's all changing very fast is my point. So I think it's hard for even professionals, it's hard mm-hmm. sometimes for people to keep up on everything that comes out around this virus. And I like with you too, you just make it personal. You have a family, like you go home to them, you have children. And 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 you're doing these things as well. Yeah, I, you're not just preaching it. You're yeah, doing no, it. I think I don't know. I, I always I'm from I'm from Louisiana. I'm from here. I was born and raised in this state, and mm-hmm. so I think you know we have a certain way that we treat each other in the state. We have a certain culture that um, I think is not always about formalities, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we care about family, people care about faith. And so I think you have to really address those specific issues um, because that's what people mm-hmm. really want to hear and care about and makes more sense to them. And so um, I think I think it's important how we message a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. to your point. Yeah. You, you know, I really appreciate sitting here listening to this because before we started, I thought, I'm not going to understand any of it. But 
you have. You've broken it down really easy for me to understand. So, and me. Yeah. So I work with families after donation. And so we have families that I've talked to that have really gone back and been very nervous and uncertain when they said yes to donation. Was there any chance of that, you know, their loved one not helping someone, but actually harming someone? And so hearing you say, leaving that to the experts um, and that y'all actually, you know, a lot of thought goes into that, whether you say yes or no to donation. So not just only ruling, don't rule yourself out, Mm -hmm. but don't rule your family member out. It is really good to hear. No, I, I think that's important. There's just so many, which is one of the reasons why this podcast was started to write, because there's so many misconceptions and misunderstandings about mm-hmm. organ donation in general. And, it, you know, the infection part, uh, sure, donors do sometimes transmit infection to recipients, but that is so extremely rare. It is extremely rare when you compare that to the, the issues that recipients have with donor Infections, infections from donors. When you compare that to the people on the wait list who die on the wait list, it's not even close to comparable. Not even close. That's great so to it's hear. So context that's important um, when we're thinking about donors in general. So I'll keep that in mind when I'm talking to families because they really care about saying yes and helping others. And I've been hearing so often from a, a wide variety of people uh, so many different opinions that come from so many different areas. Uh, some, some from uh, you know concerns with media and media just wants ratings, so they're pushing this agenda. Some from you know from a political standpoint, uh, pushing this agenda. And and I've always said I've, I've been very fortunate to have an expert like you, Doc, uh, that's at my fingertips that we can have conversations and that, that has completely raw and and apolitical uh, information. You've got an apolitical uh, point of view. And, and I would, was hoping that, you know, you can tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the hospitals uh, with your own eyes, you know, as far as uh, comparing patients that have been vaccinated versus not, not, not vaccinated, how sick uh, or much sicker are percentages of people that are in there uh, in critical care situations with each. So if you can talk, talk to us a little bit about that, a little bit more about what you're seeing and some of the, the treatments that, that are being effective. Yeah, it's a good question. I have, I definitely have no um, political dog in this fight at all. And I'll tell you, this virus is not political. And the people who are in the ICU, uh, that's also not a political thing. Um, but unfortunately, the people who are in our ICU, it's not even talking about they didn't have a third dose. It's, it's actually they didn't have a first dose. So the people we're not seeing people in our hospitals and our ICUs that got vaccinated. Uh, still, it remains that our patients who are admitted with severe disease, for the most part, are unvaccinated. Um, and we know that this vaccine doesn't 100% prevent infection, but we know it's absolutely fantastic and excellent at pre- preventing severe disease and hospitalizations. So. Unfortunately, we we still see patients who are unvaccinated in our ICUs, um, and I think we also see surgeries that aren't considered elective. Excuse me, that aren't considered urgent and are elective that are pushed back. And so we may be delaying diagnoses and treatments for other people uh, that it, that are uh, where they don't feel like it's, they're not directly affected by COVID, but they actually are indirectly affected because um, the utilization of healthcare is so high uh, by unvaccinated patients uh, who develop COVID that other people in the healthcare system do suffer from this. And so I think it's important to think 
again, coming back to the context, it's really not just about one person getting COVID. Um, and I think that a lot of us have trouble seeing that, but this is the, how we beat this pandemic. We really all have to come together, regardless of political backgrounds, and follow the science in this way and get vaccinated so we can uh, try to minimize the severe illness and deaths that we're seeing from this. And, you know, you talk about getting vaccinated, the more and more people that get vaccinated, obviously, uh, that affects potentially uh, those who can become donors. And, and, and I'm saying that with air quotes here because I've gotten a question. So a uh, couple questions on it. So, so if you do are one of those that are getting vaccinated, can you still become a donor? Is that going to interfere in any way, especially with the mRNA? And second, you know, do you see a, as effective as this has been against this virus? It seems to be one of the more effective uh, uh, vaccinations that we've seen in our past, at least in the last, you know, 30, 40 years since probably polio, I guess. Uh, do you see um, possibly a change in the future on on even, say, uh, the flu vaccine changing to an mRNA or something like that? Yeah, mRNA technology has been around for quite a while, at least 15 years or so. But this is, as you're kind of alluding to, uh, one of the first times it's been used in a vaccine. But I think you absolutely can anticipate that other vaccines, given how how well this science and vaccine, these vaccines have performed in preventing severe illness. You can, you better believe that you will see other uh, disease states um, and vaccines developed with mRNA technology. Absolutely. So, Doc, I've been asked many times. You know, recently, of course, people have questions. They still have concerns about the vaccine. I might have changed my DNA. Might have changed this or that. So, uh, and, and actually, questions about monoclonal antibodies, since that's also something that's being used. Uh, and it's it obviously something that's very new. So if if someone either got the vaccine or received the monoclonal antibodies because they were positive for COVID and uh, and as a treatment option, they, they've gotten it. Uh, would any of these um, minimize your opportunity to become a donor? Should that, you know, should that time arise? So first of all, we know these vaccines do not change people's DNA. Um, if anyone who uh, took some basic biology courses could uh, probably go back to those textbooks to better understand that this uh, mRNA technology does not change your DNA, uh, but they do not uh, exclude you or prevent you from becoming a donor. So in fact, it might even increase your likelihood of becoming a uh, optimal organ donor because if we're preventing the severe complications of COVID, which sometimes can injure your liver or kidneys, um, then we might again be optimizing you as a potential organ donor. And monoclonal antibodies, also not a contraindication to donating. Um, these are, are pretty been really used very successfully in preventing patients from being hospitalized with COVID. So when patients uh, in the outpatient setting are testing positive, we will give these monoclonal antibodies to prevent progression of lung disease due to COVID. And uh, it, again, keeps people out of the hospital. So pretty uh, great and helpful drug to be able to use. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of tools in the outpatient setting to prevent progression of COVID. So uh, our science tells us that things like ivermectin don't work at preventing progression of disease. Really, monoclonal antibodies for this um, in the outpatient setting can prevent you from being hospitalized. 
Is there a reason y'all don't use it for inpatient and pe people who are in the critical care setting? So in patients who have severe COVID pneumonia with um, oxygen requirements, if you look back at some of the early monoclonal studies, those patients actually didn't do as well when they received monoclonal antibodies. So we're really trying to get to patients before they develop a significant oxygen requirement or severe disease to try to prevent that from happening. So it's, it's more of a preventing progression. And once you're hospitalized in a way that the ship's kind of sailed, we have a whole other um, kind of package of medications and therapies that we will use for patients who have oxygen requirements that have severe COVID-19 pneumonia. All right. Dr. Han, thank you very much for the visit. We appreciate your, your patience in letting us ask you all of these uh, questions uh, from our listeners. And I'm sure this conversation on COVID will continue and we'll expect you back. Yes, sir? Oh, yeah. I'm happy to come back. <laughs> All right. We appreciate the visit. Thank you. At this point in The Gifted Life, we are taking a moment for mental health. And Ms. Nyla Schwab is here. She is LOPA's Family Services Support Coordinator. So welcome. She's also a mental health Professional. So, Miss Nyla, what are we talking about today? Oh, we're going to be talking about um, feeling uncertain. There's a lot Ooh. of uncertainty going on in our world today with politics. You're speaking to me, yes. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was like, I'm looking at you, Lori. <laughs> but yeah, we've got so much going on, and I think people can feel overwhelmed. They can mm -hmm. feel anxious. It can cause um, depression. So, I even looked it up um, in the dictionary. So, a uh, definition of uncertainty is the quality or state of being uncertain. So, if you want a synonym for that, there's doubt, mistrust, and suspicion. So, these, I think, are really big words in our you know, in our, our language today with everything going on. And Especially so, a topic we talked about today, like you're hitting yeah, the nail on the head do here. I, yeah. Do I get the COVID shot? Do I not get the COVID shot? Who do I listen to? Who are my resources? Right. So, you know, I'm just, you know, one thing that we give to our families after donation occurs is a card that talks about self-care. And so the reason I wanted to bring this up is when you're trying to make a decision, you've really got to um, look at what you can control and what you can't control. And once you kind of look at that, You've got to take a take a step back, take a pause. Mm -hmm. And um, this card that we mail out is called self-care, and it's got a picture of a, a stool on it. Mm -hmm. And it's really looking to keep some balance in our life. So how do you do that? Ask yourself, like, am I balanced? Mm -hmm. um, one leg of the stool is called support. And the second leg of the stool is called daily living activities. And the third leg is physical health. And the fourth leg is productive and creative life. Um, and so we'll never always be balanced, but just trying to search for that. So support, what does support mean? Um, that means reaching out, finding your resources. There's four different types of support. If you really want to break it down, keep it easy. I mean, you've got your emotional support, the person who's going to hold your hand, who's going to be your cheerleader, who's going to encourage you and probably always say yes. Like, Lori, I'm going to come to you if I'm having a bad day. And you're going to be the person to say, oh, you can do this, Nyla. Yeah. You know, I trust As you're that. going, people 
people are popping in my head. Here we yeah. go. We got this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, look, I got a clinical question. I, you know, I'm going to find a different type of support. I'm going to find my informational mm-hmm. support, and right. that's going to be Joey. Right. So I'm not coming to you, Lori, about, you know, my clinical. And I'm okay with that. I'm yeah. going to go with you to Joey. Let's <laughs> yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, let's go together. And then there's the esteem support, and that's just looking for, again, somebody that's going to kind of build you up. Um, and then the tangible support. That's the person that if I'm stuck at home, they might bring me some soup. Um, they might make me feel better. That's you, Nyla. No, you do those things. I do. I do. Like, what kind of support do I need? Mm-hmm. And it's really looking at that. Because if you go to the same people for the same information, are you really going to get what you're looking for? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So I would go to Dr. Hand if I had a question about COVID or the CDC resource, mm-hmm. um, your daily living activities. So if you're not getting stuff done and you're laying in bed and you're just... It's a heavy load and you don't want to get up. Um, are you getting your stuff done? Are you paying your bills? Are you feeding your dog? Are you making up your bed or taking a shower? Those things matter. And when you aren't doing those things, that can get heavy. Um the third leg is the physical health, and so that inc- incorporates a lot. Like, are you getting outside to get some vitamin D? Um, are you talking with your doctor? Are you asking your doctor questions? Are you seeing your doctor about your health? Um, are you drinking a lot of water? If you're not drinking all your water and you're dehydrated, you might not feel well. So there's all these things that go into keeping a balance. And the fourth, when you're in a, in a crisis or a difficult time or you're having a challenging um you know, week, you want to look at the things that drop off are joy and things that bring us um, laughter, uh, creativity. And you might even be stuck. Like, mm-hmm. where do I go? What do I do? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't even remember what I like. Well, what did you like two weeks ago? Mm-hmm. What did you like before you lost a loved one? What did you like when you were a kid? Did you like fishing? When's the last time you went fishing? So I would say to anybody, kind of keeping a check on are you balanced as you make a decision what can you control? What can't you control? And then going to the right people to kind of help you sort through all of this. But most importantly, being kind to yourself and really being patient because, you know, one week you might really struggle Mm -hmm. with the uncertainty in your life, but maybe you'll be that support system for someone else when they're having uncertainty in their life. That's great, especially talking about COVID. I was thinking about pandemic and all of those things because you were stuck home with babies and trying to learn, um, all of their lessons yeah, <laughs> in different grades. And so we had to reach out to other moms for support. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're feeling depressed and you don't reach out, uh, that's a dark place. It is. It so can be. Some good tips. Yeah. And I you like know, that and, stool image. And I think if, like you said, you can be in a dark place sometimes. So I hope if anybody ever feels like they're in a dark place, there is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And that number is one 800 273 8255. And so you don't have to have suicidal thoughts. That can just be a lot of the calls they take are emotional support. I mean, they are there to talk to you about, um, I don't know, your physical illness, your loneliness, getting over abuse, depression, um, relationships, anything. So just make sure you reach out to someone, someone in your support system, or you can always call that lifeline. And um, our family services department is always open, so you can call LOPA um, to reach out to us, and we'll try to help you find the right resources. Reach out. Yes. Reach out. Reach out. Yes. All right, maybe you have a topic you want us to cover here on The Gifted Life? Email us, info at thegiftedlife.com. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. 
Today, we honor hero, Miles Swallow. And we learn about Miles from his mother. My son, Miles, passed away when he was three years old. He was such a good kid, and as his mother, I would have taken his place if I could have. I miss him so much, but he will always be my hero. I donated Miles's corneas to help someone see. I wish I knew who received my son's corneas just to chat with them. However, I thank God for helping the recipients see. And now we pause and say thank you to Miles for the gift of life. And that'll do it for episode 171 of The Gifted Life. Learn so much. Yes, we did. So much thanks to uh, Dr. Jonathan Hand for coming in. He's got such a wealth of knowledge. And to be able to explain things on the levels that he does is, is so educational. It's so great. We've had him in for our staff and, and of course, bringing him into the podcast. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, I walked away with so much. Love that. We want to thank you guys for listening. And remember, you can register anytime as an organ, eye, and tissue donor at registerme.org. The best place to find us, tell your friends, thegiftedlife.org. Listen there and find links to listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating. It really helps others find our podcasts. And on social media, guys, Facebook, we're the Gifted Life Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. Thanks for tuning in. Tell your friends, and we hope that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. We're one big team. Until next time. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Caraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. Troy Perez.